We come today before a text of Scripture that is profound, that is deep, that is beyond what we can fully grasp and fathom, but we pray that you would, through the teaching of the Spirit of God, open to our minds this word as we have been praying in song. So now we say to you in the quiet of our individual hearts and together as a community of faith, open the word to us. Do that here which we cannot explain. Do in our presence here, we pray, what this world can never understand apart from Christ. Teach us your word. Strengthen us through it. Convict us of sin and encourage us in the light of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we completed a series of sermons through the book of James. It was uh, very encouraging to go through that together, to have a group of preachers who handled the sacred text ably and accurately and fed us well uh, over these weeks. Uh, I just thank God for what has been accomplished through the series through James. We're going to talk about that series tonight at our evening gathering. If you have questions about that book, and we'll, we'll entertain some questions, talk about some matters there as we just debrief on it. But we come today to a new series of sermons through Matthew chapters 5 through 7. I invite you to find your way there. And today, this is one of those places where electronic uh, text is going to be a bit of a hindrance. Those of you who have the print copy, you're going to rejoice today as we work through Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, the others, your fingers are going to get a workout. But uh, as we look at this text, we come uh, to the Sermon on the Mount as it is known. And moving from the book of James to the Sermon on the Mount is not as random as it may seem. Now, circumstances led us to look through the book of James first. But when we look at the book of James and we study this teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, there is unmistakable linkage. Some of you may have before you uh, the ESV study Bible, and in that study Bible there is a chart in the book of James, somewhere around chapter 4 or so, that demonstrates the linkage between Jesus' teaching and the book of James. Now let's remember that all Scripture, every word is from God. It all has its place and its purpose. It is all absolutely essential. Understanding that, we do move today from the disciple to the master. We're moving from what James taught us, how rich it was, to the source, or at least a source, of much of what he was thinking. We can see in the writings of James, in this book of James that we've just discussed, the words of Jesus coming out just in different concepts. But the same terminology at places, but certainly the same concepts linking these two uh, books together, this section of Matthew with the book of James. Now our plan through this series is to go through this text fairly slowly. I think it's a good idea for a church to do that, 
periodically, not just once, and for Christians to do this routinely. It would be a very good idea for each of us to read this Sermon on the Mount as it is referred to at least once a year, perhaps more often than that, to think about it very carefully. It's a significant passage of Scripture. But as we work our way through that sermon, week by week, slowly, today what we're going to do is, in a sense, is get in a helicopter. And we're going to rise up above the whole text, chapters 5 through 7, and we should let out somewhere around 3 p.m., so just get ready. We won't, but we're going to get an overview. We, we won't go till 3 p.m. Finish your sentences. <laughs> uh, we won't. We'll go quick, more quickly than that, but we're going to try to get an overview that I trust will serve us through the whole series on some level, but perhaps just thinking about this message in a way that's impossible as we dice it and slice it piece by piece and look at it very carefully, putting it under a microscope in some sense. Believe me, as we look at the big picture, there's a very big picture. This is an ocean of wealth in these three chapters. And it is a bit overwhelming, honestly, as I stand here to strive to condense and to provide such an overview. I know I will be very disappointed when I'm done, but I hope that along the way we are all together tracking and learning what Jesus is teaching us here in this tremendous discourse. Now the first problem that we encounter, and there, this will be a bit teachy, I suppose, in some sense. I hope we're connecting throughout. But just remembering we're serving uh, one another here for the long haul, for the full series. So work with me here. We're going to class a bit today, to Jesus' class. And as we do that, the first, per, the first problem that we encounter is that there is wide disagreement on how to interpret this sermon. It may surprise you. In some sense, I hope it does surprise you, but there are a si- there's a sizable percentage of Christian theologians who insist that this sermon has no direct use for us today. It really can be largely dismissed or probably seen something like a museum. Interesting artifacts from the past can help you understand how you've arrived at where you are. Thankful transportation's gotten better than when they got along in these rickety boats or something along those lines, but it really doesn't help you in your life. In fact, it's not even intended to. I want to look at two poles of this view just briefly. But some theologians claim that Jesus' words are so radical in their demands, so radical, that it is applicable only for a brief interim leading up to the establishment of Jesus' rule as the King of Israel. Jesus, however, these teachers claim, was mistaken. He thought the kingdom would be established very quickly. He preached this message so his followers would follow it until he began to reign in Jerusalem. But it didn't quite turn out the way he had planned. Now they would argue that Jesus' death has a point, but it's not redemption or anything along those lines. It's more illustration, example. But really this sermon is now obsolete because Jesus did not establish his kingdom as he thought he would. 
Like we say, don't stand next to such people, right? Can you imagine reading this sermon? Chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew and the profound instruction of Jesus and saying, this is obsolete. I think not. God indeed is merciful not to end some lives right there. These are the words of Christ. And they are significant to us. But let's go to the other end of the scale first. And that is other interpreters who claim that this sermon only applies to Israelites who will one day live in the millennial kingdom. Jesus was talking to some that were right there anticipating the kingdom. But now that the kingdom of Christ has not been established as it is indicated in the Old Testament Scriptures, now that that has not taken place... This passage really only applies to those Israelites who will inhabit the millennial kingdom of Christ when he returns. For the rest of us, again, it's a bit of a museum piece, or we might, and and there's much more respect for scriptures here, of course, and so those who would argue this point would say it, it works like the Old Testament law. There's much you can learn from it, but it really does not apply to us as Christians today. I reject this interpretation as based on an overly restrictive definition of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It makes, secondly, a claim that Jesus just does not make. And there is no indication here in this sermon anywhere, nor in the development of the book of Matthew, that this would be the case. Indeed, Matthew written by one who is some decades removed from the death of Christ and an understanding that the kingdom of heaven was not established in its fullness as it will be. I think also that this interpretation, though it seeks to honor the meaning of the kingdom of heaven, it does not take effectively into account later revelation. And progressive revelation would indicate that this text, I believe, is for us today. But among... Those who believe that Jesus' words are to be taken seriously. I have to mention two other poles of interpretation. I I hope there's no one in this first camp, but there are some who read this and believe this is how I'm saved. Individually, we obey Jesus' words and we are a Christian. And on a larger scale, we put Jesus' words here into practice and society is changed and the kingdom is established. That may sound good on the surface somewhat. We're very concerned about the work salvation idea, but these are people obeying Jesus' words. These are people seeking to change society by the application of what Jesus has said here. The problem is, what's missing in this sermon? You might find it subtly, but largely missing is any notion of Jesus Christ dying as a substitutionary sacrifice, as the Lamb of God to pay the penalty of sin. And so, say these interpreters, No need for a bloody Christianity. No need for the death of Christ. No need for the idea that He would die in our place. And again, I would want to stand clear of such people. Why 
would you listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5-7 through and ignore what He says in the rest of the book and throughout the New Testament Scriptures? All that is stated about Christ's death and resurrection cannot be dismissed because He didn't talk about it explicitly here in the Sermon on the Mount. Clearly, there is a major agenda. And it's an agenda that we would reject. And so I think that would lead to the interpretation that I would like to stress here. And that is that we must realize that Jesus is communicating His will for those who seek salvation in His name. We are not saved by obeying His commands here as such. But those who are saved by Christ, those who follow Christ and see Him as their Savior, this is their character. This is their heart. This, to say it another way, is how Jesus wants us to live. This is an expression of what Jesus desires of His people. Their heart attitudes, their way of seeing the world, the deeds and the faithful devotion to Him. And when we think of it in those terms, we need to, in a sense, at least figuratively, sit up straight. This is Jesus' teaching to you and to me as His follower. Here's my call. Here's my instruction. This is how I want you to live, how I want you to act, how I want you to see the world. This right here, we're talking about a new heart. And it's a heart I want you to have. And so He teaches us. Well, as we come to that teaching, we want to set it in its historical context. What's going on here? This sermon takes place fairly early in Jesus' public ministry. He stationed himself in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee in that region, far from the religious authorities in Jerusalem. That's not a problem here. A region that's less politically volatile by virtue of the more diverse population. And he situated himself on a major trade route so that his teaching and the demonstration of his miracles is going to spread well beyond the confines of Palestine. Jesus' battle with the religious authorities in Jerusalem particularly, it pokes out of this sermon at places. But the hostility is nowhere near the level that it will eventually reach. So we remember that. In some sense, and this is to overstate it, but things are fairly positive here. Jesus is extremely popular. He's in the safest space that he can be in, in this land, in a very productive place of ministry. And here's some of the first teachings that he would have offered. So people are coming, they're hearing, they're learning, they're being pressed just to get a sense of the location here, we have the Sea of Galilee there in the north end, that second largest lake, I guess, in, in Palestine. Jerusalem there marked by that star. So way down there along that central ridge, a fair distance away, is Jerusalem, the authorities, the religious teachers that uh, find such hostility toward Jesus and will eventually. And then we have right there the, lay, the Sea of Galilee and the region where Jesus will be teaching. Now we're going to narrow in, so you see where that, that yellow circle is there, around the Sea of Galilee. We're going to narrow in to the northwest corner of that sea. 
Uh, and right in this area somewhere is where this sermon will be preached. This teaching will be uh, delivered. Uh, don't think that he stood behind a podium and talked for 40 minutes. It's not that probably, but somewhere in this region, as we find in chapter 5 and verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. A mountain, uh, we would probably refer to it as a hill. Uh, we don't know precisely where it is, but this is the northwest, a picture of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And we'll zero in on a few of the place names. But you see Capernaum there where Jesus is stationed. That's a city where he uh, lived out much of his Galilean ministry. You see Tabga there that probably, possibly would have been the village closest to where he taught. And you see the Mount of Beatitudes, a place where he likely taught. The Mount of Beatitudes uh, viewed from Capernaum. This is the traditional site. We honestly don't know where he stood or where the people gathered. But probably on some type of mount, some type of hill, it was on some type of hill, where the people gathered around him there in that region of Galilee. Um, as far as the location in Matthew, talking about where he was at, but where this sermon is settled is also instructive to us. You see just as we work our way across the line from left to right that Matthew has very clearly organized his material with this repeating idea from narrative to message. Back to narrative to message. Where are we? And it's a little tough to see perhaps but there in that first blue block to the left Chapter 5 through chapter 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. This is the sermon that we'll be looking at, and in these five discourses, might be another word to use, we don't use that so often, but these messages, these teachings, again, don't think of a 40-minute sermon, not even of an hour sermon, it could be at times that these were days in length, and we don't know precisely. Certainly, we have a summation of the message here in Matthew 5 through 7. You don't go out of the town up into a hill and hear a 10-minute sermon, which is about all it would take to read through Matthew 5 through 7. Undoubtedly, there's much more that's being stated, discussion taking place there. But within the book of Matthew, we see the significance of the, of the positioning of this sermon, of this teaching. It is giving us out of the gate the first initial significant instruction of Jesus to his disciples. Now again, this summary may have taken more than a single day, but it is at a single time. And it is given to the disciples that they might understand Jesus' call upon their life at this early stage of his ministry. Now when we consider that ministry, not just in the book of Matthew, not just in the life of Christ, but in the stretch of redemptive history, it is important, as some have stressed in their interpretive discussions, it is important that we remember this comes before Jesus' death. Now you say that's crystal clear, he's teaching. But think about it in theological terms. He has not died yet. He is not yet talking about his death. 
There are no predictions of betrayal or death as the sacrificial lamb of God. Such themes can be detected below the surface at places, but mostly because we know the later history. So the implications of the new covenant relationship between God and His people are not yet in full view. Jesus is preaching to people who are under the old covenant that He is calling to relate to Him. Having said that, Jesus' coming means a new covenant has dawned. The kingdom of God is among them in the person of the Messiah who has now come. And the new covenant is soon to be indeed inaugurated on Mount Calvary where Christ's death begins that process. But remember, as we read, the cross is still future. So it's important that we keep that in view as we filter his statements. Let's turn then, if you're not there, to Matthew 5. And let me just walk you briefly through by way of overview, the structure of this book. There'll be a lot of differences among interpreters as exactly how to arrange it, but there's really no argument. It's just how we look at uh, some of the specifics. But you notice in verses 1 and 2 the setting. He calls the crowds to himself on this mountain. His disciples come to him, perhaps arranged uh, right close to him. And then he, verse 2, opens his mouth and taught them saying. He opens his mouth. It's pretty hard to teach without doing that, of course. But it's a formal statement that this is important. This is profound teaching. So we're gathering there just in the setting, verses 1 and 2. And then you'll notice verse 3, this blessed, uh, the, the blessing upon those who are poor in spirit. And you can see blessed, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, going down through verse 12, a section referred to as the Beatitudes. That is the blessing on the heart, on the orientation of those who follow Christ. This is whom He blesses. This is what He is looking for. And I think that we have here a sense of portal through which we read the rest of the, of the message. These Beatitudes. Then at verse 13, you'll notice there, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, you are the light of the world. If it's not crystal clear already, those who are so blessed, as the Beatitudes say, are going to have a distinctive relationship with the world. And he lays that out here. More on that in a moment. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, you see the phrase, you have heard. You have heard. We see that in verse 21. You see it in verse 27. You have heard this, but I say to you. Uh, Verse 31, it was also said, but verse 32, I say to you. Verse 33, again you have heard. But, verse 34, I say. Verse 38, you have heard, but I say. All of this section starting, uh, also verse 43, verse 44, and the like. You can follow that through. But all of this starting at verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's a beautiful statement. There's such hope there. Jesus isn't saying of the Old Testament Scriptures, throw those out, people, i got a new book for you. What He is saying here is that everything that God has revealed in His Word, all that the prophets have said, 
I am bringing to completion. I am fulfilling. We are moving forward from this place, but only by way of fulfillment. And so, as he says, you have heard, but I say, he presents the fulfillment of the law in himself and in the way that his people will live out their lives. In chapter 6, 1 through chapter 7, verse 27 then, we have the life of a follower of Christ, living in dependent submission upon Him, in keen awareness of God's presence and the final judgment before the Lord. Tag in here. I know it's instruct a lot of teaching going on here, a lot of uh, analysis, but here we lock in. It's important that we remember, as Jesus is teaching us here, that we are to live. How does His people live? In dependent submission upon Him. We depend upon Him. We lean on Him and trust Him, and we walk in submission to His Word. That's how His people live. That's who they are. There is a keen awareness in the part of Jesus' followers that God is that He is there, that He hears every conversation, that He sees every action. I am walking in His presence with a sense of His ultimate judgment and of His ongoing, continuing provision. Chapters 6 and 7 bring this out in great detail. We come then to chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 in the initial response of the followers of Jesus to this message to this teaching, which they realize this is from heaven. This is teaching we've not heard before. This is unique. All right, now, having gotten that structure, let's step back and look at a few central themes of this message. I'd like to focus on four today, and there's much to feed on here, so let's plow through. Jesus' teaching, I I find this frustrating. I got four points, and I want to hear them all at once. Imagine a string quartet. You really don't want to just listen to one at a time. I mean, maybe there's a solo piece, but you certainly don't want to stop the concert and pull one of the individuals down and say, can we hear you play your instrument? You want them to play together, right? They complement one another, and not only is there a complement of one another, they're going on all at once. So please understand, I'm doing what you would never want to do, and that's to take this sermon and pull it apart and look at four things going on all at once that we got to look at individually. But I don't know how else to do it. So here we go. The central themes, one is very clearly seen, is that there are two destinies. As Jesus talks to his people, as he speaks to us through this message today, he wants us to know there are two destinies. The first destiny is the kingdom of heaven. In other gospels referred to as the kingdom of God, it's the same thing. But it's a major theme in Jesus' preaching. We see that in chapter 4 and verse 23. You see there the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. He went about teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, as well as healing to demonstrate the authority that he had to preach the kingdom of God, this message. 
In this sermon then, beginning in chapter 5, the kingdom of heaven is seen largely as something that is yet to come. It is seen largely as something that is future. Look at every reference and that will be fairly clear. There is a present aspect, I think, of this kingdom that is taught in Matthew and in the New Testament, but that is not the emphasis so much of this sermon. Here the emphasis falls on the fullest sense in which the kingdom comes at Christ's return, when He establishes His reign. A major theme, then, is the kingdom of God. Chapter 5, verse 3. 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Move down to verse 10. And if you write in your Bible or highlight the text, do it here. You see kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Verse 19, we find the kingdom of heaven twice. And verse 20, the kingdom of heaven referenced yet again. In chapter 6, in verse 10, your kingdom come. We are to pray for the coming of the fullness of this kingdom in 6.10. In chapter 6, in verse 33, notice here, we'll come back to it, but the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It is something we are to seek. Chapter 7, in verse 7, 7 and verse 7, to ask and it will be given to us. We see continuing reference in this book to the kingdom of God. 721, let me just stop with that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we put together chapter 721 and 633, seek the kingdom of heaven not everyone's going to enter it. Some will. Some will not. Everyone lives under the universal kingdom of God, the reign of God. Whether you want to or not, He is sovereign and He rules the nations. But here the kingdom of heaven is referred to in a, it has a different sense, a more narrow sense. This is a kingdom you must seek. This is a kingdom you must enter. This means that we are not in this kingdom at birth, and it means that we can miss it. It means you can miss it. As we think of verse 21 of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, we're certainly concerned. Who is it that won't enter the kingdom of heaven? Who is it that will cry out, Lord, Lord, and not enter? Notice what verse 21 says. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. But others, verse 23, of them Christ will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. That needs to wake us up. There are some who will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are some who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' words are saying, this is how you enter. Now, we're going to say more on it, not simply by my obedience, but this is his instruction of how to enter his kingdom. 
apart from hearing Jesus' words and learning to live in obedience to them, he will say, I never knew you. Particularly of those here who see that he is Lord. We're not talking here about people who say, Jesus, he's a loser. Jesus, no time for him. We've moved past him. We've dismissed him. He doesn't exist. All those people, that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here's the will of the Father who is in heaven. Is there hope for us? Notice verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He stands strong. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine, and what's it say? Does not do them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and he will fall. So all is connected the destiny to the kingdom of heaven to doing the will of God. There is a destiny here. There is then obviously another destiny. Back to chapter 5 and verse 27. Chapter 5 and verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body is thrown into hell. Figurative, undoubtedly, clearly, we can lust with our eyes gone. But what's he saying? Getting our attention, he is saying, here's what's at stake. Hell. Verse 30, And your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Go into the kingdom of heaven. Go into hell. He stresses this significant difference. Chapter 7, verse 21. Again, there are those who will enter the kingdom of heaven. But others, verse 23, where he will say, I never knew you. And what's the next phrase? Depart from me. Depart from me. Entering the kingdom of heaven or entering into hell separated from Christ. As verses 26 and 27 say, of those who hear the word but do not do them, their house will be ruined, verse 27, and great will be the fall of it. So back to 7.13. Here then, with the two destinies, is the call. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. We've got to be asleep not to catch this sense of two destinies. 
the kingdom of heaven, entering into the kingdom of heaven, or going to hell where we are separated from Christ. Jesus teaches here that it is normal to find your way to hell. But, he says, enter the narrow gate that leads to life. Death or life is before us. Echoes of Deuteronomy. By the way, what a wonderful adult class today. We could talk about the connections between Deuteronomy and this sermon. We could go on and on and on. But here it is. Enter life. Choose life. Seek the kingdom. Well, the two destinies, this makes perfect sense. And again, here where you, 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 the, with the uh, quartet analogy, you see we can't play this theme up on its own. But the two destinies, of course, speak of two peoples. There's two peoples that Jesus speaks about here. As, as he teaches, there is forming around him a group of followers. They are, some of them, distant from Jesus at this time, but considering following him. Others who have chosen to throw in their lot with him. And as we sit around and listen to Jesus, we're in one of those groups. We're among his people or we're not among his people. Who are his people? Chapter 5, these Beatitudes, verses 3 and following, that's who they are. They're those who live this way, but how are they handled? Here we see the two people specifically coming, uh, standing out in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Narrow gate, you must seek entrance into the kingdom of heaven, and a lot of people aren't going to like you because of it. That's what he's saying. There's no false advertising with Jesus. Got a wonderful plan for your life to live healthy, happy, wise. There are going to be people who hate you. In fact, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted, there it is, the prophets who were before you. You're standing in line with a people who have suffered for righteousness, if you're going to follow me. There's two peoples. You then, as you relate to this world, verse 13, are the salt of the earth. You, as you relate to this people, verse 14, are the light of the world. You're not to be hidden away. I mean, what's the first thing you do when you know you're going to be reviled and assaulted? You run away. You hide. No, you're going to stand and shine, says Jesus. Two peoples. Now, in contrast to those who are Jesus' people, the world will despise, there are other people who are nonetheless religious. Chapter 6 and verse 2. Chapter 6 and verse 2. He says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What is your reward? It's in heaven. It comes from God. He gives it. What's their reward? Themselves. Whatever they can get out of this life, they're their own rewarder. 
And that's as far as it's going to go. Don't be like these hypocrites. Verse 5, we see it again. They pray, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Verse 7, don't be like the Gentiles. Verse 16 of chapter 6, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. There are very religious people out there. But they do their religion to be seen. To be recognized. That's not my people. That's a people heading the other direction. He warns us about this. And chapter 7, he warns us that not only will some worship falsely with hypocrisy, but verse 15 of chapter 7, 7.15 he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will re- recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. They're going to be deceptive. You're not going to notice them clearly right away. But as you look at the long haul of their life, you will see that they are hypocrites and false teachers. They'll speak the wrong things. Eventually, the fruit will make it clear. You know, there's a lot of talk that the Nazis in World War II were Christians, and much is said about the evil of Christianity that would lead to such an outcome as the Holocaust. If we get into the history of it a little bit more, you'll find it's quite clear the Nazis hated Christianity. The only problem the Nazis had was that they came from a certain culture, and they couldn't just say how, ba- how much they hated the teachings of Christ. They, they knew their thinking was counter all that Jesus had taught, but they live in this so-called Christian nation in which there was a church that very much opposed them. But working with what they had, we hate Jesus, we hate His teaching, He does not have the strength and the power that we know is essential for our rise and our importance What they did was they tried to rework Jesus. And this sermon really got in their way. There was a Nazi thinker, a philosopher, a leader in the party who took this sermon and he rewrote it. He reworked it. He denied much of it because it did not accord with what the Nazis were saying. Alfred Rosenberg was his name. Rejecting that sermon, there was another Christian in name, but I think in this case, in reality, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a book reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount and speaking about its significance to the life of the believer and very much undermining everything that the Nazis were teaching. What's so intriguing about this story is that Rosenberg and Bonhoeffer were both executed. Bonhoeffer before the Nazis came out of power because of his stand for Christ, in part. Also, he kind of made some political and murderous moves that got him into trouble. 
but he was perceived to be the opponent, and he was executed. But interestingly enough, Rosenberg himself was executed after the fall of the Nazis. It's an indication of how people relate to this sermon. There will be a judgment that comes early for those that follow Christ. There will be a resistance from those who want to pursue their unrighteous ways. But there will be an even greater judgment for those who reject Christ's words. There's a judgment that's going to come. There's trouble you're going to run into. It's whether it's going to be in this life opposed to the majority and the masses who want to murder and kill and exalt self, or if it will be in the next life when you meet Christ. Jesus saved a people zealous for good works, and it leads to conflict. Two ways of living, very clear, the connection to the two peoples going to two different places. Jesus' followers live with awareness of the presence and the provision of God in everything that we do. We see that again in the Beatitudes. Chapter 5 and verse 6. I'll go through this more quickly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's how they live. There's a hunger for what is right and what is good. Chapter 6 and verse 6. Chapter 6. And verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you in contrast to the hypocrites who seek attention. Verse 25 of chapter 6, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? That's not how the lost live. They worry. They're anxious about things and material possessions. That's not how it will be with you. You're a different people. You live a different way. Verse 30, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So even with His followers, there's a rebuke here of a lack of faith that fails to see the presence and the care of God. Chapter 7, verse 1, the world loves to judge. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The world judges on the basis of how you see me. The follower of Christ judges on the basis that there is a judge who sees all. And responds so differently. The godless, chapter 6 and verse 7, in contrast, their way, as we have contrasted it already, but just to stress this here, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. They don't know how to relate to God. They don't know how to pursue Him. And so as 7, 26 and 27 make clear, their house crashes. There are two ways of living that will be brought out and will by God's grace, bring them out in much greater detail. There are then obviously two masters as well. Number four, two masters. The master we follow, chapter 5 and verse 17, 
Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And all of chapter 5 is the master who fulfills God's law and teaches us how to get at the spirit of that law. The sermon ending again with a life rooted in the counsel of Jesus. Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7. And then chapter 6, the other side, the other master. We find just this specific reference, but I think the theme runs throughout. But notice chapter 6 and verse 24. And here it is, kind of nicely tying it all up together. 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the context is money. Fill in any other blank you want. You can't serve God and worship your children. You can't serve God and worship your possessions, your fame, your reputation. You can't have two masters. There's only one. And it's going to boil down to the idolatrous self-centeredness or to Jesus you got a choice. And you're going to live out that choice every day. I, I realize that's drinking out of fire hydrant. I, I understand. I'm, I, as I mentioned, I had no hope of this sermon working. Uh, but I hope as we take it in and soak in it, we can begin to say, who am I? Two destinies, two peoples, two ways of living, two masters. Who are you? Are you responding to the words of Jesus and seeing life in these terms along these categories? Or is Jesus out there in the dock? Is he out there being tested by you? whether he's genuine or not, whether he'll give me what I want or not, whether he will be the God that I want him to be. This sermon shakes us and says, knock it off. You self-centered, adulterous people, to borrow the words of James. You adulterous people. This isn't about you. It's not about your idols. There is a destiny, and you're headed one way or another. To whom do you belong? Jesus takes no prisoners in this sermon. It's put there right in front of us. And as we think about it, it's a little difficult to even know how to think. There's great conviction that comes from his teaching here. Before we come to know the Holy Spirit as the great comforter, we find the Holy Spirit to be the great agitator. Before he produces love, joy, peace, and other fruits of, his, of the Spirit, he troubles our hearts with a palpable sense of woe. And we would be hard-pressed to find a passage of Scripture the great agitator has used to any greater effect than the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to come to church over the next weeks as we go through this passage and find out what a good person you are, just stay home. Seriously, do come. 
but expect to be changed. If you want to come to a church where the teaching is going to say, you're a wonderful, wonderful person, don't you feel really good about yourself, you're not going to listen to Jesus. This is not how he's going to talk to us. I read this sermon, and I'm devastated. But we begin to take heart because we see chapter 5 and verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. If you come in abject spiritual poverty before the teaching of Jesus, He'll walk you along. If you come in pride, it's going to get slammed. We don't read far before we face deep conviction and the Spirit of God agitates us and we begin to wonder. We say, I fall short of the standard of righteousness that Christ expects. And we keep reading and we wonder, a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees? That's what he's calling for here? A righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees? I don't know if my righteousness hardly exceeds the devil. If we come with any pride, I can do this. If I will try harder, if I will just be a little better person, I can pull this off and honor Jesus' words. We're toast. We're in big trouble. By the way, toast means smoked, right? Something like that. We just read that in Deuteronomy today. That's God's words. I'll smoke against you. You're toast so to speak. We aren't going to make it. The Sermon on the Mount exposes our sin. It leads to waves of conviction, but we come to it like a light. We come to it like a bug comes to a light. We just can't stay away, and we shouldn't, because there is great hope here. There is great hope in this sermon. There is great hope in Scripture. As Jesus will teach Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must receive a new heart from God. You must be poor in spirit and come in repentance. Christ alone fulfills the law for us. He doesn't say here, thankfully, you will fulfill the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Right there, He points us to Himself to see Him as the light. As penetrating as Christ's words are to us, we're drawn to them. I've never heard it better than G.K. Chesterton put it. A suicidal agnostic. Can't prove if God is or God isn't. All I know is I want to end my miserable life. That's who he was until he became a Christian. A great author who had a way of saying things and seeing his sin. He said this, on the first reading of the Sermon on the Mount, you feel that it turns everything upside down. But the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel that it is impossible, but the second time you feel that nothing else is possible. 
The Sermon on the Mount is not a crazy message which our sane world cannot reasonably accept. It is rather absolute sanity preached to a world of lunatics. Providentially, Brian read Deuteronomy 4 this morning. How fitting. What is Jesus doing? What is he teaching us? Think back to Deuteronomy 4. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Can I say it this way? You will be the light of the world. They're going to see you and go, this person just doesn't live normally. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The image that we get in our mind on this side of the cross is those laws, those statutes, those rules are epitomized and fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, every one of us, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. So everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, echoes of James, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, a life founded on the teachings of Christ. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The fall of that house, the standing of that house, that's you. That's me. Two destinies, two peoples, two ways of living. There's one master. Who is your master? Your fruits will reveal. Lord, I pray that in the sincerity of our heart, those who are so minded, would rejoice that Christ is our Master. And I pray that we would more distinctly live that new life in Him. For those that know not Christ, the warning is so crystal clear. There is hell to be avoided, and it doesn't come by coasting. I pray that you would bring deep conviction and that we would all bow before this teaching in abject spiritual poverty with a joy that does not cease. 
because we know Christ, who is our righteousness. In his name we ask this. Amen.